I'm Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. This is Media Path. And right now we're going to bring you a conversation that we actually had a few weeks ago as part of another program that I host called Quarantainment. And the conversation is so classic, it's in fact Turner Classic. That's right. Our conversation is as evergreen as the films we talk about. It's a fascinating subject that will never get old because it's the history of film. And I think you'll really enjoy it. Take a listen. My buddy Fritz Coleman has been watching a lot of Turner Classic movies. Fritz is a renowned weathercaster, humorist, comedian, and we're both obsessed with old Hollywood. We read a lot of celebrity biographies, and he recently rewatched Splendor in the Grass, starring Natalie Wood and Warren Beatty, which I had never seen. So we watched it last night, and I'm not sure what it's about other than teenagers driven mad by abstinence. They could have tried pleasuring themselves, but I'm no doctor. Oh, look, it's Fritz. Fritz Coleman. Hey. Hi, sweetheart. Weathercaster and humorist. I just called to see if you were wearing a mask. Not in the house. <laughs> you and I both have a, our Starbucks addictions, and so there's several yeah. layers to retrieving your Starbucks at present. No, I know. It's a pain. You have to mobile order. And uh, so we would pay any amount of money and go through any hoop to, uh, to get Starbucks. So I get it. I have one right at the corner of my house that's finally opened back up, and it was like a national holiday when I could finally go back there. One drive through in Santa Barbara was still open. So you could go through the drive through and it was like this long line of caffeine-deprived bubble boys. It was like the gas lines in the 70s. I have one right near my house, but I refuse to get in that line. Coffee is a thing you can make at home. It's just that when I had that first Starbucks after not having it for two months, it was like, oh my gosh, they just, they, they're doing something right. And I get that we are a slave to it, but. Uh, yeah, you were like an alcoholic that fell off the wagon. Yeah. Right, right back into it. Yeah. I know. I, I, but, but I've been doing something. Uh, like going to Priscilla's in Toluca Lake, you know where that is. It's a yep. coffee shop. It's my favorite coffee shop. Uh, and I've been trying to support my local retail establishments mm -hmm. uh, one or two times a day and then over tipping them. I just want to keep them solvent. I think they're doing better. Have you noticed the traffic has picked up in businesses in the last week or so? So I think things are getting better. Now, tell us what you've been doing to broadcast the weather uh, during the pandemic. Okay. Well, I was the first person the Channel 4 threw out of the building because I'm the oldest person there. And when they realized that vulnerable people shouldn't be coming to the facility anymore, they asked me to stay home. And they uh, sent over uh, and this little broadcast kit. I'll slowly move my camera and show it to you. There is the light. There's one of the lights. I have studio lighting right there, and that little tiny HD camera that works on a system that they use in broadcast news now called Live View, which is kind of a sophisticated and compressed um, cell phone battery system. That's how it gets back to the station. Then there's a plug that goes into the router by my computer. And I uh, do the 5 and 11 o'clock news from this exact seat, with slightly aimed in a different direction by about 45 degrees. I have what's called Team Viewer on my computer, where I can go onto my weather machine at work, my weather computer, build all my maps, create my show, and then actually switch the maps on the air with my space bar at my computer. It's fantastic. I'm a totally self-contained unit. 
The only problem is when your workspace is 20 feet from your bed, it takes a lot of discipline. <laughs> I understand. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool, though. My question is, when this is all over, I think they love the way this business model is working out because there are five or six different reporters, some old and some that have medical issues, who are working from home. It looks great. I don't know how much money it saves them, but I think they're probably going to continue to experiment with this model to have fewer people in the building over there. And, well, and down the line, smaller buildings. Well, I think we could cut down on a lot of our footprint, uh, including carbon, including travel, because yeah. when, when you get used to watching Nicole Wallace and Rachel Maddow, who are broadcasting from home, and you, and you don't even notice the difference as long as they are delivering the news that, that you want to hear, uh, there, there may be less urgency for everyone to be in the building. It may be uh, staggered, and uh, we may find that, that traffic and our air are improved by us having gone through uh, this catastrophe. I think you are 100% right. Or what I think is this whole situation, you know, and uh, necessity is the mother of invention. This pushed our advancement in the technology forward about 10 years. And I think that this may do to the general business population what Amazon did to retail. So you won't have to have so many brick and mortar buildings to house thousands of employees every day. And it will change the whole working landscape. I think it will help parenting as well. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the burden of that falls on, on the mother, even when both partners are, are working. But to be able to have either one working from home uh, for portions of the week, that, that's emotionally uh, beneficial to the children. I think this, it's, it's a fantastic point you bring up. My next door neighbor uh, has three children under 10, also operates her own business out of her house. She's an event planner. So I don't know there's a, a purple heart big enough to give this woman. <clears throat> Uh, uh, but the gift in all this is that fathers get to witness the Batan death march that is being a mother all day long to young <laughs> kids and having to do this because fathers come home and they save maybe an hour or two of quality time with the youngsters when they get home from work. But now, you know, the quality time loses its quality when it happens from dawn till dusk, seven days a week for three months. So this is reconfiguring the family dynamic. Well, one, one of the uh, little tips that I'm going to give you, because I know that you're someone who, who loves to send gifts and you're very generous uh, in, in terms of that in your life. And so one of the things that I've been doing for my uh, loved ones who have small children at home is I'll, I'll go on Amazon and I'll look for books and learning toys and, and I'll send them because I know that this is a hundred times more difficult for people who are attempting to homeschool and parent uh, during this crisis. That's a very thoughtful gift. And then if you could send them several thousand dollars worth of daycare so they can get out of the house. Then I send the, the parents some alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't. All right, so how have you been quarantining yourself, Fritz? Well, the interesting thing about this is I am a loner. You're a bit of a loner, but you have a big family that you have to deal with even if you want to be alone, but I'm a loner. I can be alone as much as I want. So. This is not a big change from my routine. Um, 
so it's just given me a chance to sort of think about my life. Going to work in another building for me is really one of the only reasons I leave the house. And so when that is taken away, between working at home, Postmates, Netflix, Amazon, hypothetically, I could go the rest of my life without ever leaving my home, and I'd be perfectly happy. But you know what? I, I love it. I've done all the work inside my house. I've cleaned every closet. I've had it sterilized, as I told you, with Rego. I've done little projects today. My um, tree trimmer is out there. My landscaper is doing work. So I'm getting all the busy work done. But here, I have a feeling about this. I, you know, I don't know if you feel this way about it because you haven't been going to an office like I have. But, you know, we spend most of our lives going to work to pay for our homes. And then we spend the rest of our day driving to and from the office for another two hours. And then when we go on vacation, we leave our home. So in the end, we spend the least amount of time in the area that we spend the most amount of time trying to pay for. So this is forcing people to stay in their homes and bond with their home. And I'm so happy that I'm able to do that, honestly. Wow, that is a really enlightened way of looking at it. That, that was more than you wanted to know, right? No, I think that's excellent because I, I but I, w with this disclaimer, okay, I think that there's, generally speaking, there are, of course, we're all on a scale, but there are introverts and extroverts. And the way it's been explained to me is that introverts replenish by being alone, but with solitude, they they are able to refresh. And extroverts need social in order to refresh, which is why you see people just pouring into those bars the second they lift the restrictions, because for them, it's really painful to not be socializing or with other humans. They, they receive something from it that you and I don't. Of course, you know, we, we love our friends and family, but we, we, you and I can both do very well just hibernating and reading and, and watching and, uh, and observing and writing and knowing that like, oh, for an hour, you know, I'm going to talk to my mom. Um, that, you know, that's enough for me, really. Uh, on the regular, that's enough for me. It's not enough for a lot of people. That's an excellent point, Louise. I love that analogy. I mean, I mean if you think about it, our personalities are formed by how other people react to us. We have to have feedback. So somebody that needs a lot of attention is probably going nuts right now. But my feeling is when you're alone, for instance, uh, if, if a jerk is isolating, is he still a jerk? Maybe he's only a jerk to other people. You know what I mean? It, 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 how much of your personality gets watered down? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a tree in the forest. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he probably goes online and ah, there we go. people. An anonymous jerk's even worse. <laughs> For sure. All right, but you you told me that you've been you've been doing a lot of uh, Turner Classic movies. Well, um, you and I uh, love to talk about movies and cultural things, but uh, I'm I, I am an admitted workaholic. I have spent the last forty years throwing myself into my weather career plus my comedy career, 
And there are so many parts of my life that I lament not having paid more attention to. Uh, there are many classic books that I should have read when I was a teenager that didn't. I'm trying to catch up on those. And I, I'm trying to catch up on all these wonderful movies that are, you know, at the top of the pyramid of films in this country that I've never seen before. I never saw Citizen Kane from start to finish. I never saw All About Eve. I never saw any of these. I, I, it's not that I never did. I never saw the whole ones because I just, uh, I, I didn't allow myself enough time to do this. So what I've been doing is going to Turner Classic Movies and the MGM channel and, and then online to YouTube and just buying them because you can rent them for $3 for the whole thing. Just going there and trying to catch up. And it's, it's so much fun. Even though the technology is antiquated and, the, you know, it's black and white, there's some really smart writing in these old movies that I really enjoy. And you know what's interesting, too, for, for people like you and I that grew up watching television is a lot of these films you had, you had caught glimpses of or you picked up halfway or your brother turned the channel and you never saw how it ended. And so it's just it's really interesting to watch them and consume them in a quiet room with no other kids screaming or mom yelling that it's your, your turn to clear the table or whatever. Mm-hmm. You just watch it from beginning to end. And you told me that you, you have recently watched Splendor in the Grass. So we watched it last night and I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Now, this is a title you hear all your life. Mm-hmm. And then you hear these titles and then yet you have no concept of what is in this film. No, you're right. And I never even knew before I watched the movie that that was a line from a poem that's a pivotal part in the movie. And, and when you watch that, uh, what I loved, and, you know, you always have to look at any kind of culture, like movie or book or, or television show, within the context of what's occurring in life then. So that was the 60s, and we were rejecting the old ways of our parents and, uh, and trying to find our own life, and that was a great example of that. So was a Rebel Without a Cause that Natalie Wood uh, was also in. But uh, I'll tell you what, not so much Splendor in the Grass, which I love. She was, she was there. Wow, she was a powerfully charming person on screen, wasn't she? Can I also make this note? Warren Please. Beatty with pants tucked into his socks. Very cute. You know, <laughs> I know. And I guess that was his first film, right? That was his first. It said uh, introducing on the credits. It said introducing yeah, Warren Beatty. Yeah. And did you catch Phyllis Diller? Yes. Right? Just doing Phyllis Diller. She looked like she always does. It was a cool little cameo there. Adorable. But I watched that. I watched, um, uh, I watched uh, Citizen Kane. I watched Cleopatra because I read this book about the Mankiewicz brothers, Herman Mankiewicz that wrote Citizen Kane and Joseph Mankiewicz that wrote uh, Cleopatra. And what blew me away about all those movies, those movies in particular, but of that era, the 30s and 40s and early 50s, was how smart they were. The dialogue was much smarter than anything they would tolerate today. It was literate. People had long eight, 10 minute conversations on screen with, you know, words that weren't all that simple sometimes. It was really interesting to see that. Well, can I make this point? I I, I believe that both scripts and songs had better lyrics. If you think about this. Without question. Because they had less production value to lean on. And so it was really, they were selling sheet music you know, this had to be poetry, and it, and it's the same with with film. If 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 it wasn't on the page, you know, it wasn't on the stage. And so 
they, they gave more respect to writers. I think we have writers today who are just as good, but they're not always the ones who are rising to the top because of all the, all the other elements that, that invite people to, to go see a film. I, I absolutely agree with you 100%. And, you know, you had people like Cole Porter and Irving Berlin. And then in our era, you had uh, Holland Dozier Holland from, uh, from uh, Motown. You had all these amazing writers. And if you sit and look at some of those lyrics, they give you goosebumps. I think what's missing now in a lot of uh, uh, music, because ballads aren't, I mean, there's some slow music, but it's just the, the tenderness between, like, two human beings in a song. Yeah, if you listen to the lyrics of Alan and Marilyn Bergman, yeah, cry yeah. every time if you really... Yeah, I know, I sound like an old person, but... Uh, oh, but it's it's good stuff. Well, it's it's not so much that we're old people, it's so much that we're encouraged people, we encourage people now, everything's accessible to us. If someone mentions a, a film title or they mention a song, you can go find it. Yeah. And when we were kids, someone would mention something or you'd read, you know, you'd read a, a book about Natalie Wood and then you'd wait for her movie to appear on TV and maybe catch it, maybe not. But now, once you read the book, you can satisfy that hunger of like seeing all her movies back to back to back. And, you know, I did that with Cary Grant and I did it with Catherine Hepburn. And yeah. you know, it's really fun to take those deep dives. Oh, yeah. No, I do that. That's what I did with when I, uh, well, I, I, I took a deep dive and I just finished. I just came up for air. Uh, and one is that one of my uh, friends from NBC is Josh Mankiewicz, who's a correspondent on Dateline. He's a great guy, a very amusing guy. And then his brother, of course, is Ben Mankiewicz on Turner Classic Movies. So I'm watching Turner Classic Movies one night, and then the Mankiewicz name uh, turns a light on in my mind. Oh, my God, it's that Mankiewicz. I had no idea. Oh. And they were there talking about this book that was written about Herman that wrote Citizen Kane and Joseph that wrote... Uh, all about Eve and Cleopatra, this this dynasty of amazing writers. And Josh is one of the funniest people I've ever met and a great writer and a journalist himself. So what I did was I thought, wow, I'm going to dive into that. So I, I ended up renting Citizen Kane, and then I rented All About Eve, which was written by Joseph Mankiewicz and Cleopatra. And then I read this book called The Brothers Mankiewicz. And if you're a Hollywood, I know you'd love behind-the-scenes Hollywood stuff. It, I'm going to give you my copy. It's unbelievable how fun it is, how nasty and backstabbing. And it's amazing any movies got made because they were all spending a lot of their energy trying to figure out how to screw the next guy. I've already started reading the book. I've got it on my iPad. Oh, there we go. Which brother is, is their dad? Uh, Joseph Mankiewicz is their grandfather. I, I'm sorry. Herman Mankiewicz is their grandfather. Okay. Joseph Mankiewicz was the father of Tom Mankiewicz that used to be the head of the LA Zoo and I did fundraising for him. But again, I never connected all these dots until I read the book. But but what I loved about like the Herman Mankiewicz story, which I think they cover in the book first, was that these guys all, they were part of the Algonquin Roundtable, which was this group of really funny, smart people like George S. Kaufman, Dorothy Parker, all these really, and I, I mean, uh, I would have killed to be a, a, a like a an underpaid busboy at the restaurant, and these guys were having one of their drunken meetings because they were all hysterical and talented. So I don't know. That's awesome. All right. Are so, you having fun with the book? Yeah, I just started it. I'm I'm I, I read about their dad, who was fascinating. Yeah. And then now I'm reading about Herman. So I, I've just I've just started because I had finished a book called Nothing to Envy. Have you heard of this book? No. Okay. 
write down nothing to envy. It's about North Korea. And it's written maybe 10 years ago. And it tracks like five or six people from North Korea who make it to South Korea. And the author interviews them extensively. So she tells each of their stories what life in North Korea is like. And it's just wrenching. Wow. I'll tell you another good that you bring up a good point uh, about reading books during quarantine. Rachel Maddow's book, Blowout. Did you read that? Yes. Oh, man. It was scary, but interesting about the whole oil industry. Fascinating. Yeah. It's just really, it's really, really intriguing. Um, One of the points that she makes is that in, in any kind of society where value is pulled out of the ground, it can be easily funneled through one or two warlord dictators and the people uh, don't, don't benefit from any of that wealth and their environment is polluted. It's, it's especially in the third world nations. I love the African nation that she keeps coming back to all the money that Exxon and our uh, previous uh, secretary of state were pumping into that country. None of it went to the people. It all went to one guy. Because it's really easy to arrange that. Yeah. You're such a personality. It's a bribe. It's just they, they bought off the, the emperor of the country. And so the same, the same thing happens in Africa with diamonds. And so. Yeah. And she talks about certain states in our United States that are, that are also kind of at the mercy of fracking. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the earthquakes. Yeah. Suddenly. Uh, spring up in uh, which, which uh, state was it? Remind me. Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, all of a sudden, there's earthquakes. Yeah. And all of the way that those rich oil barons were able to buy off local politics to make people forget the reality of what was going on there was awful. Yeah, it's, re- it's really chilling stuff. Good all book. right. Any other uh, uh, quarantainment recommendations before we sign off? Um. I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to play catch up with those old films. I'm at a, a stage in my life, and part of it is my age, and part of it is looking back over my career. And I have no regrets about my life. I've been enormously lucky in every aspect of my career. But what I didn't do was allow myself enough time for stuff to creep in from the outside. Movies and books and and plays and stuff I wanted to see and I knew I should see just as a as a citizen, but I didn't allow myself because I was too married to my work and now I'm trying to play catch up, and I'm enjoying it. I know that my uh, retirement, when it comes, will be awesome because I have a lot of things, a lot of missions I'll be on to do what I exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, Plus, and and everything that you consume informs your art so you're going to continue to write and perform one yeah. man one man shows correct mhm absolutely are you working on one right now i am uh uh i i've been doing one with, which is not not like a theater piece not like the thing that you produced with me but it it's uh for lack of a better term a a, a single topic monologue about being over 50 and i've been doing that for the last two or three years and i've been having a blast because our group, the boomers and slightly older, I really enjoy seeing their lives put into perspective in a humorous way. But I'm, I'm, I'm working on one now, and I have no idea what form it's going to take. I don't know if it's going to be like a multi-character play, or it's going to be a one-person presentation. But I grew up in Philadelphia, and all my life, I was 
uh, addicted to R&B, soul music. Soul music, uh, Motown, Gamble and Huff, all the Sigma sound, the doo-wop music from Philadelphia was really what drew me in. And then later in my life, I became a big fan of blues. I mean, everything from Howlin' Wolf to Muddy Waters, all those old guys, Freddie King. And I'm, tr- I'm, I'm, I'm investigating why this is so interesting to me, why it resonated to me. I even wrote a little anecdote about the first time I heard a James Brown album. It was like somebody had given me an illicit drug and I felt guilty but I felt this insane sense of fascination and I was so drawn to it. And the question I want to answer in this thing is how is uh, a person like me who has no cultural connection to where that music was born, poor slavery and post-slavery South, you know, the, 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 the suffering roots of African-American music. Why is that so appealing to me? I'm just a white kid from the suburbs and the first time I brought an Elvis Presley 45, an RCA 45, a hound dog, and the other side was Love Me Tender, my father wanted to throw me out of the house. And it's that whole thing about, uh, and then I talk about, uh, um, I think that music like Motown with Barry Gordy was very, uh, very cognizant of presentation, making the women look good so that they would be appealing to a white audience, probably did more for race relations than all the politics and all the fighting that was going on because the black culture worked its way into suburban white American homes through the music. So I'm writing a thing about that. I don't know what it's going to do. No, it's actually really fascinating. Did you watch the documentary about Barry Gordy? Where it's about five times. Yeah. Five times. So... He, he figured out what he needed to do, and he was very methodical about it, plus musical. So he had that magical combination of qualities that made him the perfect man for that time. He didn't always treat his artists the way I believe they should have been treated. But having said that, he was the first African-American owner of a business that was selling to white people. Uh, in, 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 in droves. So that's was, right. And he had black and white people working for his company. Yes, yes he did. And the other, the other thing I wanted to point out about why, you know, why was a pasty boy like you so drawn to this music? So were the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles yeah. lived in Liverpool, which was a port city. So sailors would come. I mean, this was, you, you know, if you got a hold of one of these things, you know, you felt like you had struck gold. If you got a hold of a, of a record, and so this stuff was coming in off the ships, and these guys just were intoxicated by it. So yeah, that, that's that's a, that's a that's a great point. And the thing about it is that 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 post World War II Liverpool poverty, all those row houses, those guys had more in common with where blues music was coming from than I did. Huh, that's good point. Good point. Those guys like Clapton and the Beatles and the Stones and Led Zeppelin introduced American kids to their own art form, which was American blues. That whole thing is fascinating to me as well. Yeah, that pipeline is is yeah. really intriguing. So that's what I'm working on now. At the very least, it's a great mental exercise for me during quarantine. No, that sounds amazing. I can't wait to hear that. And I know that your your previous play the one that you were talking about, about people over 50, that was recorded at a performance and it went viral on YouTube, correct? Yep. It, I recorded it at the Conference of Aging in Pasadena and it's had, I think, almost 6 million views now. And for a long form thing, 40 minutes, 
And for people that age to click that many times, it was, I was happy with that. Yeah, but so I, it was a lot it, of, Kathy, you need to watch this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's talking to us. <laughs> I'm Nancy. having a hot flash. Nancy, he's talking to us. Uh, all right, Fritzy, I enjoyed talking with you so much today. Oh, I, I miss I miss our visits, but I'm so glad you gave me this opportunity, and you're a great interviewer and great conversationalist. I'm a Zoom link away. That's okay. comfort. All right, sweetie. All right, love you, honey. Love you. Have a great day. See you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.